0: You are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the OG Bad Boys of Bigfoot, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive of Squatchology, the Chip and Dale of Bigfoot, and I'm not talking about the cartoon. Please welcome your hosts, the Bigfoot celebrity couple, Biff Clobo, better known as Cliff Berrickman and James Bobo Fay. Bobo, how are you doing today? Excellent, sir. How about you, Cliff? I am doing very well, thank you. Anything exciting going on we should know about, or you just want to jump right into it? Because I just kind of want to jump right into it because of our guest today.
2: No, dude, I, I know who we got on today, and I I got nothing to say until he says something, because
0: he's going to enlighten us and the audience. Yeah, nothing that we have to say is going to add to our conversation. So let's just jump right into it. Um, so uh, I've had the pleasure of meeting this gentleman before. I actually met him at Beachfoot in a, kind of a West Coast event that uh, Todd and Diane Neese put on for a number of years and um, I, I listened to this guy speak and I was blown away because not only is this guy like a legitimate academic um, with an interest in Sasquatches and you know those that combination right there is amazing but he's a historical figure as well um, for old timers and then that, when I say old timers you know I feel old but I know I'm not an old timer the old timers are the four horsemen you know Burn and Green and Krantz you know DeHinden those guys but for the um, the next generation i call it generation the second generation you know but uh really it's the it's the 1980s and then the 1990s and that's kind of this 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 area it's it's like the dark ages of bigfoot because not a lot of information comes out not a lot of people seem to be super active you had stuff from Kranz, you know the dramatoglyphics, you had the blue mountain activity that was going on there but really you know the other people are kind of low profile that's the Joe B. Larch. That's the Cliff Olson's. That's the Richard Greenwell's for the International Society of Cryptozoology. And that's why I was stoked to hear our guests speak because this gentleman that we have on, th- on here today, Angelo Caparella, he was involved with, with Dr. Greenwell on his expeditions to Northern California and Southern Oregon and all of that. Um, a historical figure in cryptozoology is with us today. So he, he's, an, he's an ornithologist at Illinois State University. And listeners, please welcome, and Bobo as well, please welcome uh, Angelo Caparella. Angelo, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you very much for the invitation
0: to be on your podcast. Appreciate it. We are thrilled whenever we can have a legitimate academic um, on the program. And so why don't we start with that very briefly? Like, what, why don't you tell us um, what your job is? And we promise not to tell anybody because we know how, like, uh, you know, college professors are treated if they're under big interested in Bigfoot. But luckily, no one listens to this. Your word will not not reach out. Okay.
1: Well, actually, my job now is getting used to retirement. (laughs) After 31 years uh, as a zoologist at Illinois State University, I finally decided to retire, Uh, let a new younger generation come in. And this was after getting very involved in conservation biology and fostering our collections of birds and mammals, doing a whole host of things, educating graduate students. I still have an affiliation at the University of Illinois State, but um, my retirement effectively, I would say, uh, occurred in June. And so I'm just sort of adjusting things, uh, getting used. The COVID kind of uh, threw a ringer into some of my plans, at least for now, as it has for so many, but uh, basically continuing doing projects uh, in affiliation with the university, but now have a little more flexibility. And thankfully, uh, all you educators out there can appreciate this. Uh, thankfully, don't have to teach under the COVID issue that uh, causes uh, so much difficulty for both teachers and students.
0: I can't even imagine. Like I was an elementary school teacher for 14 years, and just to think that like what what teachers are going through now, just to educate their their students, you know, and uh, it's just teaching is hard enough, but this, I mean. It, uh... Teachers deserve medals, you know, they certainly deserve raises, but they absolutely deserve medals for what they're going through now, as do the students, I might add.
1: Yes, it was challenging. Uh, My last semester teaching was last spring uh, of 2019, and we had to pivot right in the middle of the semester to all remote teaching, which was quite a struggle for everyone since it had to happen so quickly. But I got through it, so I guess that's good. And now uh, I can concentrate more on other things. So when,
2: with with uh, Google and all that now, did, are your students today like Google? You and are they aware of your bigfoot interest? Were you like real quiet at school about it, or did you was it known? Just not a real big deal. How did that work?
1: More of the latter, I would say. Uh, in fact, I even had a couple of students, an undergraduate and a and a graduate student, kind of helped me as we sort of were uh, using analyzing for vocalizations a lot of the SD cards that the NAWAC was providing. And uh, taking a look, making spectrograms of vocalizations and things like that, they were helping me uh, with that project, and that was a lot of fun. So, how did you get into the Bigfoot thing? Because I mean, you're a bird guy, I
0: guess. I mean, your initial, your main interest, uh, interest being an ornithologist, would be you know, birds in general. Was the interest always there, as it is with so many of us, um, like from when you were a little boy, or did it arise because something happened uh, to you or when you were around? Or tell, tell us a little bit about your history with the subject. In zoology, my initial interest
1: was op- actually herpetology. So I grew up herping in North Carolina which, of course, studied reptiles. Reptiles and amphibians, reptiles and amphibians, herptiles, herpetology, reptiles and amphibians. And it was only a little later that, uh, in fact, it wasn't until undergraduate at University of North Carolina that I got into birds. And uh, as a vertebrate zoologist, I was pretty much interested in all vertebrates, including mammals. So I considered myself pretty general, although over time, I gradually specialized more and more in ornithology as I continued through my academic career getting my master's at Texas Tech and then my doctorate at Louisiana State University. Uh, That shifted me more to birds, and particularly neotropical birds, birds of South America. So I was on a lot of expeditions during my graduate years and after looking for new species of birds with museums down in South America. Uh, But in terms of cryptozoology, I was interested as a teenager. (laughs) Uh, I can trace that back to getting on the track of Unknown Animals by Bernard Heuvelman's. And of course, Ivan Sanderson's works and uh, John Green's work. So it wasn't just uh, Sasquatch that I was interested in. I was interested in all of cryptozoology, uh, which uh, Sasquatch gave me the most opportunity to do some field work in the 90s with Richard Greenwell.
2: That's awesome. My head's, my neck's getting sore because as you're talking about the books, you like my head's gone
0: real fast. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds familiar. <laughs> Built, yeah, you're building Bobo's neck muscles. Excellent. <laughs> you became interested in um, cryptozoology in general, just uh, all of the various animals that might be out there, and Bigfoot being one of those. Uh, but you, event- how did you make a connection to Greenwell?
1: When he started the International Society of Cryptozoology, I found out about it right when it started, so I was one of the early members, and uh, visited me in New York City when I was at the American Museum of Natural History as a postdoc, and invited me in the 1990s to come on the board of directors. So I was uh, elected to the board of directors, and served on the ISC, International Society for Cryptozoology, board of directors from 1993 to 2005, and uh, I actually, even before that, uh, he had me on an editorial board starting in 1988 for the journal Cryptozoology, and I would peer review relevant articles for the journal and got to talk to him quite a bit and uh, became really good friends. And then when I read within the journal his field report for his uh, expedition, one of the, maybe it was his second expedition, I don't recall exactly, to the Siskiyou Wilderness of the Six Rivers National Forest in Northern California. It was one that Jeff Belger was on, and uh, along with a couple other people including his son, uh, Richard's son. And when I read all of the activities they had and talked to him more about it, I said, Richard, you got to get me in on this. You're following the same philosophy that we followed at LSU to discover new birds in South America. That is, you select a site and you just sit there and you work it. And you work it for weeks, if not months, in the case of Peru, uh, and you get to know it well. You don't just go traipsing all over the place. You really become part of the forest and get to know that area. And he had selected this area, uh, which was centered on elk, elk Hole in the Siskiyou Wilderness, based on past research that he had done, as a potentially a really excellent place to have a long-term field project to try to get evidence of Sasquatch. And as I say, after I found out about the successes they were starting to have with encounters, I asked, hey, I'd love to be on some expeditions up there. And uh, I was on three of three of them. I wasn't able to go on all of them, uh, 1998, 1999, and the final one, 2005, which was just before his uh, tragic uh, passing.
2: I was so bummed I missed those because I was, I was around in the, that area when you guys were out there. And I knew about you guys being out there one time, but I didn't. I knew Meldrum, but not that well. And uh, I was like, man, I, I was wishing I could get a gig like hauling bags for you guys or doing whatever.
1: That's certainly how we got into some of these areas. Although to get into alcohol, we actually, uh, well, actually one year he told me he rented llamas, which he said he would never do again. <laughs> and he said they were very unreliable. But in subsequent years, we did uh, horses and mules, uh, rented those and got into alcohol, which was a really hard place to get into. Uh, and But a great place to work.
0: Well, yeah, the Siskiyou Wilderness Area in general has just a reputation of being one of the gnarliest areas in North America. There are stories of, uh, you know, um, the wildlife firefighters being dropped off and having to be rescued out of there. Um, it, it is some of the densest, thickest, nastiest off-trail areas you could possibly go um, with tons of bears, tons of animals, um, and just treacherous terrain perfect for Sasquatches in, in every way you can imagine, and for the historically-oriented Bigfooters listening, not far
1: at all from Bluff Creek. Yes, in fact, in 1998, that's when we actually did do Bluff Creek. We hired porters to take us down, and we spent uh, about a month in Bluff Creek. Uh, and that was my first trip with him. He decided to switch from the Siskiyou Wilderness to do Bluff Creek. But then after we had nothing at all happened in Bluff Creek, we went back to the Ciscou Wilderness, and that was in 1999. So, but although though it was a very useful comparative study uh, to have done Bluff Creek, and it was fun just because he took me down to the Patterson site, which I would have never been able to find on my own. And it was just kind of neat historically to, to see that that site, although it had changed tremendously, as those of you who've visited sets know.
0: Oh, this is is so funny because, I I mean, Bluff Creek is essentially Bobo's home stomping grounds. And I've been working the Bluff Creek area since 1994. So we were all there at the same time just we happened to miss each other. Like, I I think any one of us could have been that weird, suspicious guy on the road going the opposite direction in that Mm -hmm. car, you know. Um, Some of us are more suspicious than others, perhaps. But uh, still, like it's so interesting that we're all there at the same time, more or less. Certainly, we must have overlapped at some point.
1: Probably so. And actually, we were filmed by a uh, film crew for a TV show. We were like a segment within one of those many, many different TV shows at the time that would deal with crypto cryptid problems. One of the ways that Richard tried to fund these expeditions was to invite uh, 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 camera crews from different kinds of shows. Uh, One year even had it from a Japanese TV series to kind of help underwrite it so that we could go down to these areas. And at least for the 1998 one, we did have uh, a film crew there briefly. Uh, they then left and then we did most of our work after that, but uh, that's on a TV documentary somewhere. I forget now what TV show it was on, but you can see us coming out of the Bluff Creek wilderness after about a month looking pretty dis- disheveled, particularly since we ran out of food <laughs> while we were there. Uh, <laughs> planning got better after that. Uh, and, uh, so I, I should probably try to find where that TV show was that has that segment of us. Um, I know we were profiled along with the coelacanth and something else.
0: Well, that would be that'd be very interesting to look into. So uh, the, I know Greenwell did expeditions to the Sixes River uh, River area, which is in southern Oregon. Uh, you, you weren't on any of those trips, it sounds like.
1: No, I wasn't on any of those. All of mine were in northern
0: California. Okay, so Six Rivers National Forest. Yes. Um, wh- um, what are some of the the highlights or some of the adventures that you can share with us from those expeditions?
1: Well, there were certainly many. Uh, the 1999 one was was a lot of fun. We uh, basically we was we he was still refining a lot of his techniques. So some of the techniques and teaching them to be as well. I mean, one of the techniques was broadcasting. His son was a real electronic whiz and put together an incredible broadcast system. So we were actually, alcohol is at the, uh, up at the headwaters of Dillon Creek. Dillon Creek is one of those areas that you can't walk down <laughs> because it's just too, too much, too much brush, too dangerous. People do get stranded there, as you mentioned. Uh, but he had, a, the uh, philosophy was that it's very hard to walk up on a Sasquatch. So we want to interest them in us. We want to be the bait. We want to engage their curiosity. That was his philosophy. Bring them to us. That's the only way this is going to make any sense. Because there's no way you could just stumble across that without your chance, as you all well know, and do any kind of uh, long-term study. So we wanted to engage them in being curious about us. And that was his philosophy. He did a lot of different things to try to enhance their curiosity. Um, And he was very good, Richard was, at finagling high-tech equipment on loan. Because, again, we had really no budget other than our own personal finances. And he would get the high-end cameras, thermal cameras, uh, the uh, imagers, I mean, all sorts of stuff, uh, seismic sensors. Um, he, he, was a, he could talk anybody into giving him anything. It was amazing. <laughs> and his impeccable British accent, I think that helped a lot, his British accent, uh, really, really helped in his interactions with people. But he was very verbally adept at uh, engaging people, very extroverted, very, very friendly, and could get anybody talking to him, which was really neat. And we had all sorts of interesting, uh, uh, you know, sounds and things like that. I remember the 1999 was the year that uh, I became convinced that we we needed to have better recorders because we kept missing sounds. You know, we had, it was one of those deals where we had the recorder ready to turn on. And, of course, by the time you turn it on, the sound isn't happening anymore. That was incredibly frustrating. And so... For the 2005, we actually bought a couple of digital recorders that we made sure were going 24-7. Of course, now we have these autonomous recording units that you can get that'll go for months uh, continuously uh, without your having to change batteries or SD cards. But at the time, it was challenging because, again, you just never knew when a vocalization would happen. And it was very frustrating to miss those
2: Hey, Angela, what, what birds have you heard them imitate? Because I, I, I've heard them do owls and like it sounds like a finch and a few others. What, what have you heard of uh, crows and what, what have you heard?
1: Well, the one that blew me away actually happened when I uh, started working with uh, the NAWAC in the Wachita Mountains of southeastern Oklahoma. One of the recordings I have that blew me away as an ornithologist is a perfect rendition of a common cuckoo which is what the cuckoo clock sound is. And it was weird. We were in camp and hearing this thing, and I'm thinking, what on earth? There's no way a common cuckoo would be a vagrant from Europe (laughs) in the mountains of of southeast Oklahoma. I'm not even sure if they've been recorded from North America. And if so, it would be either from Alaska or from northeast Canada. So that's one bird that was weird. And the only thing I can ascribe that to is I know that over the years, they have broadcast all sorts of assemblages of calls for the NAWAC. And uh, I can only assume that somebody at some point during all the field work there must have broadcast a cuckoo uh, sound. And uh, that was a perfect rendition of a common cuckoo. I have that on uh, as a recording, and you couldn't tell it from a the, that, so that's the bird that freaks me out the, the most now, and of course, it stood out to an ornithologist because it, we knew it wasn't a bird that could be there. Whereas, if they're imitating other birds that could be there or are there, it gets a little bit trickier to ascertain whether you're dealing with mimicry or the real thing, bird-wise.
2: But what, what, what have you been like perplexed about? Like, what you couldn't for sure say either way—it was an imitation or an actual bird.
1: Well. From my own experience, everything I've heard so far in terms of uh, birds that are supposed to be there have been those birds. <laughs> so I haven't heard any imitations of native bird species that made me suspicious. Uh, so in terms of that vocal arena, I haven't. Uh, I can't really offer more on that score. No
2: eight hundred. No eight hundred
1: pound owls. <laughs> no, no. All the owls that we hear, we hear a lot. All sound like the regular owls of different species. Yes. But again, the mimicry of that common cuckoo was just spot on. And if they're that good, and it sounds like you've had experience with that, if they're that good, then it might be tough to tell apart without doing a spectrogram, without doing a spectrographic analysis.
0: Yeah, that's that's something that's often uh, I've wondered about is uh, I do hear a lot of Bigfooters say that I've heard an owl, but it was eight feet off the ground and had to be uh, 800 pounds and all this other stuff. I say, well... I don't know. Shouldn't we be giving Sasquatches more credit at being better imitators than that? Like, I think that if a Sasquatch was doing something, unless it was completely out of place, like a bird species that doesn't live there, um, you would have a hard time figuring out if it was a Bigfoot mimicking something or if it was the actual thing. Um, just recently on on, on on another podcast we were doing with uh, Kathy Strain, and I, I mentioned this every once in a while, uh, I mentioned hearing car doors slam in the woods. And for me, if, if I was anywhere else but the woods, I would just assume it was a car door slamming. So is there any way that one can tell the difference if, if, the, if the sound is indigenous to the area? Because you know, obviously car door sounds aren't indigenous to the bottom of the Siskiyou Wilderness Area or something. Um, but uh, what, what avenues do you think that a researcher could take to uh, kind of show that they're not just saying it? Better microphones.
1: I suspect, well, yeah, I suspect if you had a good recording and you did a spectrograph, uh, gram, uh, spectrographic analysis compared it to known sounds that you would see differences that would start showing up. Uh, and you might even hear that an experienced ear who really knew the native birds might well be able to detect differences, too, in terms of pitch or some other more subtle aspects that might not be um, evident to a non ornithologist and actually, mimicry itself is really fascinating because if you look among the great apes, they don't mimic and they particularly don't whistle. And the fact that we have whistling vocalizations, in fact, that was one I also heard down in the Wachita's that completely freaked me out. The average a person would probably just thought it was some sort of a nighttime bird. But we had a, a visitor into camp right at dusk that did a series of really fascinating whistles. And I told my campmates at the time that this is no bird. (laughs) This is clearly no bird. And uh, it had come in response to having done some broadcasting earlier in the Wachita. So uh, one, I think, may, if you aren't familiar (laughs) with your local soundscape, people may be overlooking certain vocalizations that are being made by these things.
0: Oh, yeah. And how many people are really, you know, fluent, so to speak, at all the different night sounds. Um, I mean, I, Bobo and I spend a lot of time in the woods at night, um, probably more than most, I think um, it might even be fair to say. And I can't even say I can't claim that I'm familiar with the vast majority of night sounds. I mean, a lot of them. Yeah. But still, I hear whistles and I don't know what's making them. It's, it's just it's just a difficult it, There's just, it's just too much, too much to be able to master unless you're a specialist.
1: That's true, but all the more reason that we should be doing a lot more recording than we do because the vocal arena, I know people want to see these things for sure, but I guess maybe coming as an ornithologist, I find the vocal aspect really fascinating in terms of uh, trying to contextualize it, see if there's regional variations in the types of vocalizations and and the like. Because I think that that, as, as with birds, if you've ever talk to a bird watcher, you find a lot more birds by sound than by sight. And uh, that may work in this arena as well. Oh, for sure. Not only should we be recording more, we should also be collaborating more.
0: Because um, other people know a lot more than I do, you know, and it's, it's a good thing to have people on your team that you can ask questions of that just might be able to identify those sounds in the dark.
1: Yes. And actually, it's interesting. In 1991, I wrote a small little paper in the journal Cryptozoology called Cooperation, a Key to Progress in Cryptozoology. (laughs) There there you go. Yeah, what I advocated is that that field researchers collaborate as much as possible with sympathetic scientists. I've seen too much of irritation, understandable irritation with the scientific community of poo-pooing things and the like, but it had gotten to the point where people were just Saying, well, the heck with scientists and the heck with science, you know, we're just going to get rid of that altogether instead of trying to find those sympathetic scientists and trying to collaborate because the Bigfoot community is doing, a lot of that, are doing incredible field work. But to, ha- to help with the analysis, it's good to have uh, academically trained biologists as well and both can complement each other.
2: Oh, for sure. Because I, I like guys. I've grown. that grew up hunting around here. I, mean, I grew up. In, Cliff and I both grew up in the city. I went out in the woods with my dad and stuff like that. But he didn't know what we were hearing. But I think what a lot of people go. That's all. You know, that's a mountain lion, or that's a bobcat, or that's an owl, or whatever. Or they, they'll just say, I'm not sure what that is. It's but it's not a bigfoot. It's like, well, you you might have been told since the, your dad was told, his dad was told that that's that's a mountain lion. That weird. It's just a weird sounding mountain lion. They they may have been hearing. Bigfoots all these years and just didn't, they had no
1: idea. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, learning the soundscape in your area, it takes a lot of work. And uh, even for me, I really know the birds well, but I still don't know all the mammals that well, even locally. And many of them can make some pretty weird sounds. Uh, Fortunately, there's a lot of acoustical research being done. And you can go on places like the Macaulay Library at Cornell and learn a lot of, of sounds that are in your area of Uh, both mammals and birds, and that's a real big help in terms of trying to then cut through all of that and ask if what you actually have recorded or heard uh, might be a part of a Sasquatch or something unknown.
0: Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Sonidos of our music sonidos of our voices
2: sonidos of our stories listen to the sounds and voices of latin music and culture with pandora stations like rmx la vida en pop el pulso and satélites and podcasts like ruby rosa and more from music to stories all that we are is in the sonidos of our culture listen now on pandora
0: Well, you know, we got off on a tangent there for a second, and it was a a valuable tangent, but still, I kind of want to hear more about the expeditions. Yeah. Yeah. Bobo Bobo and I are both students of Bigfoot history,
1: and you were right there for big chunks of it. Right. Again, I was so amazed at what Richard could pull together in terms of equipment and other things. I mean, the basic techniques are things that are done today, you know, putting up cameras, although we now know how hard it is to get things on cameras, uh, and thermal imagers, and uh, just trying to record with really inferior equipment at the time, uh, the broadcasting was new to me. I don't know how commonly that was done at this time, but in, there, in the and when he first started doing his trips to the Siskiyou wilderness, he had his son put together a state of the art broadcasting system that when it projected, we basically. Oak Hole being at the headwaters of Dillon Creek, you could go, go to an overlook, a rocky promontory, and you could project down into, into Dillon Creek. And I swear you could hear at least seven echoes as it echoed down from the canyon, uh, trying to bring them up to see us and figure out what's going on and trying to induce a curiosity response. That, for me, was new to see that being done. Again, I don't know how commonly that was being done at the time, but, but for me, it was a new technique to see. Uh, in in operation. And then the other thing that was uh, methodologically was just, again, just spending good time in the camp. He also felt like, uh, he also insisted that we all dress in camo, but not carry any guns. And part of his thinking there was that they would be curious as to why we look like hunters, but didn't fully act like hunters. Uh, So uh, that was uh, another aspect of what he argued for one year, one, one year uh, he, and I think that was in 1999, one of the craziest, just to show how good he was, he actually brought, he had gotten hold of a urine sample from a menstruating orangutan. <laughs> yeah. <I remember laughs> and deployed that, that, and deployed that uh, from the uh, promontory where we would broadcast, tracking it all the way to camp. I don't think it actually elicited anything, but uh, just the idea that he could even come up with something like that just always amazed me.
0: Yeah. Like, who do you talk to to get that? And, you know, like, yeah, hey, I, I really, I really need this. <laughs> what do you need? Yeah, well, yeah, we'll get to that
1: later. but I really need it. Yeah. He had developed a whole network of contacts, contacts. And if you're familiar with the society and the journal, you know that all academic scientists were on both the board of directors and the editorial board. So he had really been working for a couple of decades to put together an academic group of acknowledged academics at uh, known institutions, whether museums or universities, to try to elevate, if you will, the uh, perception of cryptozoology among everyone and to also provide a peer review system through the peer review journal and a forum for exploring this in a very scientific sense. And I think all of that paid off over the years. He was just incredibly good at networking.
2: Yeah, you know, I was going to go back to what You said they might, they'd be confused by seeing these guys without guns and camo. I can assure you they were not because that was back in the heyday of guys growing illegal weed out there. And I actually had two buddies that grew in Dillon Creek for 20 years, and they would always see a big white male, like head to toe white, like a dirty white. And they, uh, they just, they said it never got aggressive. It never did anything to them, but they would just watch them.
1: Wow. Well, th- yeah, that's, that's really funny. Well, we didn't try to do that.
0: It <laughs> <laughs> so went wrong.
1: I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> you could have
0: funded your own expeditions.
1: <laughs> well, indeed. <laughs> time, for sure. <laughs> well, 2005 was really the pinnacle and all, uh, but it was kind of a tragic end to the pinnacle because he passed away a couple of months later from a cancer that uh, came out of remission and uh, nothing ever got written up. He had all of the materials and things to be analyzed, and I was unable to get those from his, uh, his heirs, who, as far as I know, they're still in storage somewhere. But I can tell you a couple of things that happened that just really impressed me. One was that once we started broadcasting, we had uh, visitations every night. Something was happening every night in terms of hearing things and, uh, seeing the remnants of them behind our tents and things like that. Uh, I never had a visual, uh, and, but his son and his son's friend, Mike had some visuals at the head of the trail that goes into, that gets you back to Elk Hole, as well as his son had a visual on the road to the head of the trail when he was coming back with some refurbished equipment. But one of the most amazing things that happened, happened to Mike, who was a friend of, uh, Darwin Greenwell and was on the trip for the first time. Um, so we had as our protocol saying that if anything happened at the night that woke us up, we would still pretend to stay asleep. The idea being that we didn't want to try to look on our own or anything. So we were forbidden to unzip the tent or do anything but stay asleep until morning, with the hope that if there was a visitation, you know, there would be enhance the likelihood it would get in front of the cameras or whatnot. Well, Mike had the record for composure <laughs> because what happened to him is he apparently, he was in one of these smaller tents and he was up against the brush line and he was, had his back against the tent. And he said the next thing he realized is he could feel this giant hand pushing in the tent along his back, kind of feeling up along his back and onto his stomach and then retracting. And he kept his composure the entire time, which I'm amazed at, until dawn, which was a little bit later. And then he got out of the tent. He was pretty shaken by it all. He went to have a smoke, and something started throwing rocks at him. Huh. And uh, when he told us that the next morning, we were pretty amazed uh, that, at that whole experience that he had, that, that, this, that the thing actually touched him through the tent. Did he control his bowels, even? Give him credit for that. (laughs) I mean, he was clearly shaken by it all, but he followed the protocol. And that was, uh, I would say, the closest, if you will, encounter that we had. Now,
0: did you guys retrieve any physical evidence, either footprints or photographs or casts or anything like that or hair, anything
1: at all? Um, We did have some footprints, but they were in the duff and they were just impossible to cast. Uh, It was just the soil was just not. Castable. We did have hair samples. Uh, one of the things that I brought was a DNA sampling kit. I had DNA storage buffer and all of that. I had uh, uh, material so I could, you know, um, uh, wipe down any any um, uh, tweezers, you know, any forceps, uh, so that I could disinfect them ahead of time and make sure there was no contamination. And one night after a visitation, that night we found about six hairs with follicles attached that were on a part of the a broken limb just behind our tents where this thing kept hanging out and um, discovered it first thing in the morning. And I immediately got out my DNA sampling kit, followed clean technique, had gloves, had everything you would need for doing that, put it in the DNA storage buffer, and then brought it back. Uh, And that was the one piece of evidence that I did convince them to send me before Richard passed away. The recordings and other things, unfortunately, like I say, they're who knows where, I don't know where where they are at this time. But I had these hair samples and had them refrigerated. And then here I was stuck with the idea well, what do I do with them? <laughs> so I started inquiring, trying to find a lab that would handle them, you know, to do some DNA work. Cause I knew they were totally fresh. I knew it had the follicle along with the main hair stem. Uh, we knew that it had to be a Sasquatch. The only other possibility was a bear, but we had had no bear activity in camp for a while. And, um, Finally, 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 I heard about the project that uh, the Belba Ketch- Ketchum and David Polides were talking about. Uh, I forget the name of the project where they were looking for samples, and I sent them my samples, all six hair follicles. They passed the pre-screening morphologically apparently, and then became of that study. But as we all know, that whole study sort of devolved into who knows what, And I regret to this day having sent all of them to that uh, study because it just did not work out.
0: Yeah, the lesson learned there is uh, give one, keep the rest, (laughs) you know?
1: Yeah, well, I had spent several years trying to find anybody who would just take a look at them, and that was really frustrating. So when I finally heard what I thought was going to be a credible approach, at least as it was initially presented, I thought, okay, you know, have at it because we really need to get these analyzed. But unfortunately, they're, they're long gone. Yeah. Yeah. Never to be seen again, probably, I'm guessing. Never to be seen again. That's true. But that was probably some of our best physical evidence that we had along with. Oh, and I think the other thing that really impressed me is we had a thermal imaging camera. We never could get anything, as you all know, on these night cameras. And as people speculate, oh, well, these are certainly night cameras that had a pretty evident red light on them. <laughs> and uh, uh So if anything really wanted to avoid them, they could certainly see them easily enough. But interestingly enough, we had a thermal imaging camera that we kept on our little camp table in the center of camp, and we put a little, draped a little camo over it and had it as part of sort of a messy table, and it was pointing right at the brushy area where the two small tents were, behind which we were having nighttime activity. And one night, it picked up this huge heat signature, rising up behind the tents, and then going back down. And the next night, we tried to replicate it with our own body heat, and we were a pale imitation. So this was behind Mike's tent, which later had that activity with the, the, the thing feeling him up. <laughs> and, uh, and that we got uh, serendipitously as a one, the one image. I mean, it was impressive, the, the amount of heat off of that big thing. We, we couldn't see a clear-cut totally clear clutch shape in part because it was behind branches and the tents, but it was really shown through. It was pretty impressive. How big do you think it was? About Well, based on the tracks, the tracks we were finding were about, I'd say 10 inches. So we're pretty more in a large juvenile size, not an adult. And this was consistent with what he had had with when Jeff Beldren was with them is they were pretty sure they were getting juveniles visiting the camp as opposed to full size adults. Uh, And so um, I think that would be somewhat consistent with a a younger, more curious individual.
0: Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages.
1: Yeah, one of the things that I thought was pretty neat, too, is I was a co-author with him uh, on two presentations. Uh, In 2004, at the 57th annual meeting of the Northwest Anthropological Conference in Eugene, Oregon, uh, I actually have the title in front of me, Uh, he presented, uh, along with me as part of summarizing those years uh, in the uh, Siskiyou Wilderness, new field evidence and physical finds supporting the presence of an unverified primate species in the Pacific Northwest. And we were actually on the program, which was pretty hard to get on these scientific programs. How, How can we see that? Uh, well, and as, as part of the abstracts that were published, uh, do did, did not have. I don't think he ever sent me the complete slideshow. Although I have to go back and see. I've got a whole welter. Part of what I've got to dig through in retirement is to try to get a lot of my uh, old files and computer and everything else kind of up to date because I kind of lost track of things. And I have a lot of Greenwell-related material. Some of which I'm sending to Cliff for the museum. Uh, to be to help me with archiving it. So over time, I hope maybe I can find that again. The other presentation is actually even more amazing uh, by Richard and myself in 2004 was at the 84th annual meeting of the American Society of Mammalogists. We were really lucky because it happened to be held at Humboldt State. And we presented there the same uh, basic um, uh, program to the mammalogists there. And just to get on the docket, you know, just to be able to give a talk, it was packed, Richard gave the the talk, was pretty hard to do because professional mammalogists, at least publicly, are very skeptical. But what we learned was that privately, many of them are not, (laughs) which was a a very interesting, kind of an indictment of academia when you think about it. But uh, we had a lot of people tell us privately afterwards uh, their own experiences and the like, although publicly they would never own up to them. So the fact that he was able to present some of the results of our of those years of work, some of the years didn't involve me, uh, at both that anthropological conference and at the American Society of Biology was pretty pretty unique. I mean, those were pretty benchmarks to have those kind of presentations at those kinds of societies.
2: Yeah, I think that uh, didn't Dick get you guys on the he was a professor at Humboldt. I think he got you guys on the bill there, didn't he?
1: It uh, wasn't him. Um, oh, gosh, I have forgotten the name now. Uh, Brian Arbogast, I believe, was his name. Mm. He's no longer there. But he was sympathetic enough that he thought, okay, well, I'll just see what you have to show, have to tell, and uh, got us on the uh, program. Yeah, I, I went to Humboldt State. Oh, boy, is that a beautiful campus? Oh, it's the prettiest one in the country, probably. I think you're right about that. I was
2: just
0: really impressed. And what year was that? There's was in the 90s, right? 2004. Two thousand. okay. So now um, you're, you're retired, um, and you're going to be ho- hopefully spending a little bit more time doing some Bigfoot field research. Um, and you're a member of the NAWAC, the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. All that, all that's correct, I hope?
1: Yes, that's correct. Um, I am retired. Unfortunately, I've developed some health problems that have kind of plagued me recently, and I'm trying to get some control over those so I can... I can do some local field work, but I can't right at the moment do any a uh, little more distant field work. But I'm hoping to get that solved so that I can. Plus, also with all this COVID crap, <laughs> you oh, know, yeah. every, everybody everybody's really been hampered by that. But I have been trying to uh, through some other means. I did uh, advise the society, and in fact, I would advise anyone if you want to get into the acoustical arena, uh, it's a little pricey. The Song Meter Four. From wildlife acoustics, eight hundred some dollars. But these devices, you just set them up and they record twenty four seven. for, depending on what kind of batteries you use, a month or even three months, and you've suddenly got a welter of recordings that can potentially have vocalizations documenting what you've heard, or even if you aren't there, uh, documenting what was being state uh, happening at the time. And so I uh, encouraged the organization to invest in two of those, and they've been deploying those at their camps ever since, and we've been getting a lot of neat recordings of, of, of vocalizations through that method. Again, it's probably coming from my ornithological training, but they're using ARU. Uh, this is a, what they call an autonomous recording unit. There are other kind of units out there, but this seems to be the kind of the easiest to program and, to, and at high, very high quality. They're used in field research all the time, including in primatological research in the tropics. They're used quite a bit in primatological research. They're actually even able to through, uh, If they get enough vocal material, they can actually start uh, picking out individuals within these groups of monkeys that they're studying down there. So then there's a lot of versatility in terms of what we can learn from the uh, vocalizations. And again, coming from an ornithological background, I, I'm very uh, vocalizations are so key in a lot of avian studies, less so in terms of mammalogy, except for bats, where they're very key, uh, and I, but these are being used more and more in mammalogical studies, particularly in primate studies in the tropics. So I think we ought to be using this more in our field work if you can afford them.
0: Yeah, that's one of the interesting things that came up in a previous podcast that we did with a woman named B Mills, who um, is doing a recording project out in southeast Ohio. And you know, being a cast guy, you know my thing's kind of footprint cast. We're identifying the same individual Sasquatches from the data set. You know, they leave the same, they leave their tracks in the same area over time. Um, And so B is now starting to think that she can recognize. The, the sounds of different Sasquatches. So uh, she's tracking individuals by their sounds now, which it sounds like exactly what uh, you just mentioned here. And yeah. there's no reason you can't do that, especially if their voices are so are, are, are different than one another. Just like, you know, you, you can hear that I am not Bobo speaking on this podcast, even though you can't see me right now. Um, and there's no reason I think that Sasquatches wouldn't have different uh, sounds and timbres to their voices as well to be able to do this. Exactly. Uh, and age and sex differences as well. Oh yeah, she actually mentioned she's been hearing what she's interpreting as one maturing over four or five years. Yeah, it, even to the point where she 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 kind of speculates I might have heard its voice crack.
1: You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. About, I don't know that much about puberty in Sasquatches, but that's an interesting observation.
0: It makes sense. It, no one does. No one does know, and that what an interesting at least hypothesis. And it's up to her yeah. to kind of build the case for that. But how interesting is that? I think that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, I'd love to know if there's regional variation in um, Sasquatch vocalizations too. I mean, there's a lot of regional variation in birds, uh, where we can tell different subspecies uh, apart, even within the same species, biological species. And you can find these kind of regional variants. Uh, And also, we find in birds that they often will uh, adjust their calling to propagate within the type of vegetational surroundings that they're found. So that birds in the canopy have a different pitch and type of call than birds in the forest floor. And I'm sure there would be variation between the Pacific Northwest and the Everglades. So so uh, that would be interesting, too. I mean, there's so many, again, using birds as kind of a model, there's so many things that we could potentially learn if we had a good library of vocalizations recorded from different areas uh, different times of year. I'd also like to know just seasonally, if there's changes. I mean, you would think during mating season, I I don't know if their mating season is year round or if they have a particular peak time. Uh, And then just in terms of uh, just general moving about, uh, when are they vocalizing when we aren't there? I'm actually kind of more equally interested in vocalizations that may be occurring in the area when no one is there, when no humans are there versus when humans are there. So, I mean, there's a whole welter of information one can get. And the nice thing with these uh, SD cards is you can store them forever and, and analyze them over time using uh, different software uh, analysis packages. So, uh, this, it's a very, very, uh, again, underutilized technique that I'd love to see more researchers who can afford it try to use.
0: Now, most researchers I know they use uh, um, field audio recorders, uh, generally set on MP3 setting instead of wave, so it takes they, they can record for longer periods of time. Um, and these cost hundred to four hundred bucks or something like that. Right. Uh, now, by and large, uh, that would that information be valuable? Yes. To, uh, that that's good enough at this yes. point for the average Joe researcher.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like uh, what you deal with. Uh, birders who are getting into birding, you know, you have binoculars that span the spectrum from the, you know, a decent pair of $200 to, and I have it's the price of a car, $2,500 or so. I mean, you, you get what you pay for in terms of quality, but you still can do good science with uh, with these. Uh, again, it depends on your budget, obviously, uh, but I would encourage recording at some level. The, the main thing that we were concerned that we got so frustrated with in the Siskiyou Wilderness was even when we, you know, well, in 2005, we did a better job of being able to continuously record, although at that time, the technology we could afford only allowed us to go 12-hour periods. So, we had to make sure that we were careful and put it. So we had two recorders. And so, once one gave out, we put the, the next one rolling, give the other one time to recharge or whatever, put the batteries in, all that kind of good stuff. And uh, so, you know, I, I mean, my philosophy is anything's better than nothing, uh, but you do get what you pay for. But I would say, yeah. I mean, I, I, I would. I'm interested in hearing anything. I mean, some of the earlier recordings that NAWAC did, and I'm not even sure what kind of recorders they used there at the time. It's probably some of these smaller digital recorders. They uh, produced some pretty good uh, sounds that we were able to get nice spectrograms off. And we've been trying to catalog. You know, looking at frequencies and things like that, the, the different kind of vocalizations. <clears throat> What's happened in the bird wo- world is as, as people study bird species, which uh, have a diversity of, diversity of vocalizations, if, particularly if you're a songbird, a passerine or something like that, is that uh, you, make a, you try to uh, do a catalog of all the different vocalizations and then you try to contextualize them behaviorally as to what they're communicating. And so I would love to see us get a library of sounds, of uh, Sasquatch sounds, that can then be contextualized to try to figure out, to the extent that we can, what behaviorally is being communicated.
2: So, Angelo, what are the best audio recordings you've heard? I'm sure you've heard a lot of, lots of samples over the years. What, what, what impresses you the most?
1: I imp- Well, uh, anything that obviously is not made by a native mammal or native bird. Impresses me the most. And I can be very, to be honest, I was in some ways more impressed by the whistling that we heard than the Ohio Howl rendition that we heard, in part because the ability to whistle takes a very different laryngeal structure. Only humans among the great apes can whistle (laughs) uh, in any significant way. And uh, I think there may be an orangutan or something in a zoo that was trained to whistle, but apparently whistling takes a morphology that's really unusual and not represented within other great apes outside of humans. And so that actually impressed me a lot, just because I knew that vocally, mechanically, that's harder to do with the vocal apparatus than the Ohio howl. Oh, you know, that's interesting. I, have, uh,
0: I actually have an, uh, uh, a whistle recording um, that Bobo and I got. We, we thought we had a Sasquatch around. It was making noises like, like they tend to. And um, we, Bobo and I were doing night walks from one camp to another. And uh, we left one camp. And just a short while after, uh, 15, 20 minutes, or I'd have to check my notes, uh, after we left, something came by that camp and did a, followed by a, like a big tree knock. Uh, right afterwards, and i I got it on recorder that I found later, so i like, I'll send that to you i give that, give you an email of that, and you can listen to it and tell me if it's a bird that I don't know about because I don't know about all this stuff
1: No, i'd love to, I'd love to hear that for sure
0: yeah, in fact, um hope you don't mind you're probably going to get a fair number of vocalizations and recordings over the next year or two as I get more and more last year in Massachusetts, we heard an
2: incredible whistling display put on by two of them, and they were small ones they were only like human size because I actually saw it through my thermal. I saw it through my thermal. I thought there were uh, some other guys are were with us. This, this was just in like central Massachusetts. And this thing started whistling these craziest like notes and the up and down and so intricate, but it didn't repeat anything. It wasn't like a song or it was just random. And they were going back and forth, just putting on like, like if you're the best whistler in the world, trying to show off is what it was like. And I thought, man, these guys are, I can't believe these guys, these guys are incredible. And then. They came walking down five minutes later, and those things took off down into a swamp.
1: That's fascinating. Yeah, again, the anatomy that it takes to do whistling, particularly complex whistling, uh, is not something that you find in other species of great apes. So, and maybe, maybe
2: just the juvenile. maybe like the adolescents, are, uh, maybe they get so big they can't do it as well, or, they can, or they're more limited when they get bigger. I don't know. There could be...
1: I No, I'll bet they can still whistle. Uh, If they've got the vocal apparatus that, uh, as a juvenile, it's probably still there as an adult as well. I I mean, it may be that contextually the juveniles are more likely. I have no idea, but uh, uh, I I wouldn't see a reason why the adults couldn't do it as well. Uh, The uh, the big
2: one, well, I I know for sure a big one did it because I saw it, but it sounds like, you know when people put like their forefinger and their thumb in their mouth and do that one super loud? Yes. When
1: humans do that, I've I've heard Mm -hmm. them do that one. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, the full repertoire that I hear about more and more is just amazing. Well, it makes sense. You know, I, I think in a lot of ways
0: that, uh, that, that they could replicate a lot of the sounds that we do just because we're built the same in a lot of ways. We don't know about the insides, about you know, the, the functions of, you know, trachea or whatever else they got going on in their, in their tubes there. But they're, they kind of look like
1: us and it makes sense that they can probably make a lot of sounds like us, too. Well, I have to disagree with you there. Uh, it's, hard, it's hard to see why that vocal capacity should be there. Uh, it, I mean, again, if it's not in any other great ape species, why did it evolve in this one? That, to me, that's a mystery. That's a real mystery.
2: Same as it evolved in us.
1: It evolved in us, and now it may be in this. Yeah, but I mean, the, to me, it's a mystery of why. I mean, it, it, you, you never know if the any, any characters that undergo evolutionary change— you'll have like the primary adaptive functions, but then you can have secondary capabilities that just kind of happen to arise out of having that particular character evolve in that direction so that it wasn't really being selected for that purpose, functional purpose, but it's a correlate that is then enabled. Uh, It's uh, uh, what they sometimes call an exaptation. And so it's difficult to know if... um, why the vocal apparatus evolved within Sasquatch is, if that's what's going on to explain the whistling, which I'm pretty convinced must be why it would go in that direction. I'm not quite sure if the uh, paleoanthropologists understand how that w- what was the re- the selective forces, the selective uh, adaptive advantages of having the vocal apparatus change from the progenitor great ape in humans in the direction that it went. You know, is it a consequence? And then, if so, why do we not have full speech within the Sasquatches. So I don't know. Uh, and that in itself is cons- controversial as to how much potential faux speech, what is that, what is that that's going on with so called faux speech? I'd love to know more about that. Yeah, I've always taken
0: um, the, the, you know, the Moorhead recordings and stuff, the Alberry recordings from, you know, the Sierras, the Sierra Sounds, uh, that as well as, uh, firsthand accounts of witnesses who had heard those things. I've never heard it. I wish I had Bobo has heard it before, but I've never have. I've never heard them speak or quote unquote, speak back and forth to one another, but I've always kind of taken that as an interest. Well, certainly an indication that they might be having this faux speech or even speech. We don't really know Um, back and forth with one another. And, that seems to jibe well'll well, see, um, my model for them, as everybody who listens to this knows is, I think that they're probably paranthropists um, and not gigantos. I think they're probably paranthropists, um, uh, some sort of robust Australopithecine. And um, their ability to have some sort of speech or proto-speech or whatever like that kind of falls in line. I think with a lot of what, at least what I'm thinking about them at this point. Um, now, mind you, I don't think that they they're they're rocket scientists or anything like that. Um, but I think they're smarter than the average you know chimp. Um, being a hominin, like I, I kind of put them in the hominin line. So, w- would I be thinking too out out, out of bounds if um, I think that speech would be somehow in or some sort of proto speech might be inherent in the um, hominin
1: lineage? Not being a paleoanthropologist fully converse it with the fossil record, I couldn't say. But we do see a lot of parallel or convergent evolutionary trends within different lineages of mammals. And so I wouldn't in and of itself uh, sway me towards philanthropists. I still am, am more of the giganto orangutan clade <laughs> as tracing these things. In part, biogeographically, it makes the most sense to me, uh, as well as to me, uh, when John Bindernagle put together his book arguing that it is North America's great ape, It just seemed to me like the bulk of the characters that he documented that were being shared with other great apes. You may remember he did that comparative study looking at uh, the great apes, gorillas, chimps, and orangutans, a brilliant study where he was saying this is analogous to what's going on in this particular great ape or that particular great ape. And To me, it convinced me that the most parsimonious explanation is that it is a great ape and not a hominid. I think that's a bigger stretch, but I can say where, you know, you can certainly pick out some characters that might argue for a hominin. it's just that I think those are outweighed to my mind, at least by characters that look more great apish to me. And also we know the power of convergent evolution as well as parallel evolution. And so it's very hard to, to know. I mean, this is, this is why, uh, and this will be the controversial uh, request is we've got to get a specimen. Somehow we've got to get a specimen, I'm speaking as a museum scientist and speaking as someone who's worked with documenting new species of birds, where until we got the specimen, we really didn't know what we were dealing with. Uh, Speaking on the history of total misidentifications of things, of new species of mammals, even primates using just photographs or anything else. A specimen is if we don't get that, we're never going to get this field advanced further than it is today, in my mind, at least in terms of scientific acceptability. But once we have that specimen and we just need one that's properly secured and uh, curated and analyzed, then all of this incredible wealth of material that you and others have collected over the years from cast to hair to uh, scat to vocalizations, all of that will then be available retrospectively to go back and have a whole bunch of academically trained people take and really work out what this all really means in the context of what that specimen revealed.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I mean, I, I'm not a hunter. I'm not going to be the guy to pull the trigger, as I've said a hundred times, but um, a, a specimen is necessary. So people out there, and I get this all the time, like you're just working really hard to prove the species. <laughs> like, no, you're not unless you're buying ammunition and you know, you're, you're really not um, you're maybe collecting information. But that's not trying to prove this, the species. Um, and people come, I can't wait till these things are proven. I say, well, yeah, then I mentioned a dead one. They go, oh, I don't want that to happen. So, well, you, can't have, you, know, you can't have it both ways, unfortunately. Not, not, not by the rules as written today.
1: Exactly. Um, and, and it's not just the rules that are written. It's the reality. If any of you are familiar with the history of taxonomy and systematic biology, you know that that you've just got to have specimens, a whole body specimen. You Even DNA is not the end-all, be-all. There's so much you can gain. If you've ever uh, seen the monograph that was written with the first specimen of the giant panda, I mean, it's a thick book. <laughs> it's just amazing <laughs> what the comparative anatomist was able to determine and figure out. Uh, and as you know, even the giant panda was controversial as to where to put it. Is it a bear or is it a, uh, in the Procyonidae, the raccoon family? Even that took a while, even having the specimen. and so. A specimen just gives you so much more information uh, in terms of the physical properties of the organism that you would never get from DNA. But I will put in a caveat here. Don't go out trying to hunt one of these things. If you haven't first thought through, number one, how the heck are you going to get the the thing out of the woods? Number two, (laughs) how are you going to preserve it properly so that it can be scientifically viable? And number three, how are you going to contact Appropriate members of the scientific community to make sure it 's handled properly you don 't want to get a fly by night person to to take your data and, and just ruin the outcome we 've kind of seen that happen in some other arenas i 'm afraid so you want to have it you want to have a planned uh, as museum collectors around the world know we do it under very planned carefully planned circumstances so when we collected the new species of parrot in Peru. We knew how to make it into a usable scientific specimen. We had liquid nitrogen with us, which was the preservative of the time, to keep tissue samples. We had recordings that we had made of it, uh, photographs. I mean, we had everything that we could document and permanently uh, document by bringing that material back and compare it to material in the museums that of other related species in order to document it. So you can't just have anybody out there just shooting these things. It has to be part of a coordinated thought through careful uh, effort. I tend to think that the
0: first dead one will probably come from a very, very frightened hunter um, who brings down a small one because the deer rifle can probably handle it or or very luckily plates shot. Essentially. Um, If that person happens to be listening right now, what would you recommend to them? That's a very
1: interesting question. Number one, I would recommend you might want to get out of there right away because <laughs> we don't know what kind of, um, of uh, reaction might occur from any surrounding adults if it was a young or any relatives that ha- might happen to be there. I mean, I would be cautious. One of the uh, plans should be how can you get it out as quickly as possible and also have backup in case there's a hostile response because while in general, I don't think of these things as very hostile and have the fever being out around them, that would be different. That could potentially eliminate a, a you know, a, a hostile response that you might want to be careful about. We also don't know what they do with their dead. So if you did leave the area with the thing body there, would it be there when you got back? I don't know. Um, no. uh, yeah, likely not. I agree. And so, I don't know what to say. Uh, you know. And then, of course, people are very fearful of the legal ramifications. We, we think it's probably happened before, right? I mean, there's certainly some potentially credible tales of people having uh, shot one through fear or fear of uh, what they were seeing, and then maybe even afraid to tell about it until later. So uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm not totally convinced that it would come to the fore that easily. I think, <laughs> to be honest, and this is what Richard thought, so I have to, t- since we're talking about Richard Greenwell, Richard was pretty convinced that at some point, a semi or a train would hit one, as happens often with big animals. And he therefore had arranged with the University of Arizona folks to be able to, he actually had a plan uh, where they would airlift it to a lab at the University of Arizona through the contacts he had there with the forensic people. Uh, and that, that I think, might be more of a situation that would be more tenable in a sense. But again, I don't know what authority figures would do if they if something like that happened. I mean, my goodness, you could go wild in terms of speculating as to whether it has happened and things have been covered up for whatever reason. Think about the implications of having fully established that these creatures exist. The implication for the land use, uh, the, for the way we use or abuse our public lands gonna have huge implications. There's gonna be huge economic implications in terms of conservation. Personally, I think it'll be on the good side in terms of preventing a lot of the abuse we're doing now on our public lands. But uh, I can see economic interests not wanting this to be discovered at all, <laughs> that this could be a real problem for, uh, for a lot of economic interests out there that depend on non-sustainable uses of our public lands. Yeah, I, I've always uh,
0: re- referenced people to Dr. Krantz's book when it comes to like, what do I do if I shoot one? And so, well, you're probably not gonna, first of all, like just your average Joe Hunter or something. And then you're uh, in the museum here. And I would say, well, I get, I guess Dr. Krantz said, cut off the biggest piece you can carry, get it out, um, cut off a finger separately and keep it and don't tell anybody where you put it because that'll prove it's yours. Um, cut out the biggest piece you can carry, preferably the head and Bring it to the media, essentially, so everybody will know it's yours right away. I don't do that. I, I, I would. I, I tell people, call me. I'll get Meldrum on it right away. It's basically all I can after I verify it. You know, um, after that, it's out of my hands.
1: Well, I certainly did recommend to the NAWAC, and they probably thought of it. Had already thought of it. Is that the very first thing you would want to do if you're doing this in a planned way? Is you want to have your DNA storage buffer with you, and you want to take a tissue sample immediately and put it in that buffer. Number one, so that even if you get pummeled by a family of Sasquatches later on, (laughs) somebody will find the little (laughs) cryotube, the tissue sample in it uh, that's labeled. Uh, Number two, uh, if you really do think you're going to have trouble getting it out because it might be an adult male or something, yeah, you know, it wouldn't hurt to take a part. And then the question is, which part? And obviously, the head would be primo, although an adult, that might be pretty hard to manage as well. Uh, Hand and foot would be additional parts to consider as well in terms of being really informative, definitive pieces. So, head, foot, and hand would be parts that I would argue for after taking an initial tissue sample. And to be honest, even if you don't have DNA buffer, buffer, just pull out a chunk of hair and put it in an envelope or wrap it in some paper or do something, you know, just to get part of the specimen preserved because especially if you have to head out of there right away and you have no way of getting it out of there, at least you'll have some remnant of what you uh, have shot. So if a hunter does unintentionally or through fright or whatever, uh, shoot one, I'd say, yeah, take a finger, take more if you can, take a clump of hair at least, you know, stick it in your duffel bag or whatever you got, I mean, or your knapsack or whatever, and then head out of there because I do think it could potentially be a hazardous situation if you're by yourself. And you're not with others who have some firepower who could back you up. I do think we would need to be cautious under that. But, yeah, and then, you know, I mean, there's certainly enough. Um, hopefully, uh, yourself, Cliff, you're a very high profile person uh, going through you as an intermediary to get to, or to Jeff Beldrum or someone. I mean, eventually, if it's stored properly, it could be analyzed.
0: It's a gruesome way, uh, it's a gru- it, but that's the
1: only path towards species recognition. And just think of what it means to get species recognition. It means protection. There's a reason why the NAWAC has conservancy as the nice part of, this, of its name is they recognize, I mean, our national forests are just being way abused. Uh, We have, uh, of course, climate change and other factors that are deteriorating. Well, look what happened with the Western wildfires taking out some ancient sequoias and redwoods and the like. I mean, there's so much we're doing to this planet that's making it less habitable for everything, including humans, that we really want to get these things protected. But until they're legally recognized, which means that they're recognized by science, you're just not going to be able to do that. Once we can Legally recognize them by having a specimen that's accepted. Uh, not only do we get all the scientific knowledge, but we can r- finally work towards actually conserving them. More and more today. For example, the uh, parrot that we um, discovered in Peru with the specimens. After we brought the specimens back and demonstrated that it was a new species, a new national park was declared, and what was going to be a timber concession. So, so there, it was worth the sacrifice of those individuals to be able to protect the entire ecosystem and their population in the future. But that's the hard part of conservation today, is you gotta prove it before people are gonna take things out of economic production.
0: Yeah, in fact, uh, we learned when we uh, filmed Finding Bigfoot in Vietnam that the Vietnamese government has already, they already set the boundaries for a wild man preserve once they have proven their version of the wild man, the tare. Yeah, so they've already set aside land for it. And China.
1: Oh yeah, and China, right. That's right. fantastic. I'm very happy to hear that. Uh, yeah, I hope we can be as visionary here. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we'll have to be. I mean, again, once we prove it and demonstrate whatever it is, whether it's hominin or a great ape or whatever it is, uh, it, it'll the public uh, 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 interest in seeing it really protected. I think will be such that um, that will really be able to be a real win. For conservation, not just for them but for everything else. Well, look what happened with the bill. You know, the Ivorybill woodpecker was supposedly rediscovered in 2004. I say supposedly because there's still debate over whether one was really uh, filmed or recorded or seen. Uh, but it leveraged incredible protection of southern swamplands throughout Arkansas particularly. And, uh, and that was with not even totally proving that the birds still survive today. So these kind of things are really valuable in conservation. I mean, there's a lot of ways we, as uh, conservation biologists, which is another field that I've sort of shifted to as I was at Illinois State University, is there are a lot of ways we justify preserving things. But concepts like ecosystems and the like are sometimes hard to, to get across to everyone. But if you have a charismatic megafauna, <laughs> I always like that term, a really big animal that, that is very uh, appealing to people, I um, mean it's why the World Wildlife Fund uses tigers and the like. There's so much more public uh support, dollars, and everything else that then is an umbrella to protect everything. So and my God, I, I'm just so excited with the prospects of of proving that this thing exists, uh, and then documenting what its full range is that um I think it would just Leverage not only a major advance in primatology, but a major advance in doing conservation within North America.
0: All right. Well, Angela, with that, I I can't think of better words to send our listeners off into their own uh, expeditions and try to gather some evidence to bring it back and further the science, you know, get the ball a little bit further down the field in this big football field that we're playing on. So um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for your, uh, your wisdom that you brought. Um, and it's nice to have another academic on the team. So we can't thank you enough for spending some time with us. My
1: pleasure. Thank you.
2: Yeah, thank you, Angela. I appreciate it. And I hope to see you out at Area X sometime soon.
1: That would be a lot of fun. Yeah, as I get my health problems under control, that's where I'd love to go. All right. Well, good luck with that. Thank you. There we go again, Bob's.
0: Another cool episode. A, a little slice of history, you know, with the Greenwell expeditions. We, we have a little insight into a scientist's mind and what that's going to take. Um, yeah, it's just fantastic. I'm pretty stoked we got Angelo.
2: Yeah, I mean, hats off to these academics that stick their neck out and, you know, put it all on the line, their reputations and potentially their livelihood to investigate this biggest natural mystery we have in North America or the world, even. Yeah, yeah. We're lucky to have them on. Yep. Well cool, Cliff. That was great. And so we got a few of the Wood Ape people coming up here in a row. So this is this is great. And I want to tell everyone, you gotta to go to woodape.org and listen to their podcast. They're I think they're the best. I mean, obviously everyone knows Sasquatch Chronicles. If you want to hear stories like witnesses telling, you know, encounters. But if you want to learn learn about Bigfoot, go to woodape.org and listen to those. Uh, read, I mean they got tons of stuff to read, but you can uh, obviously if you're listening listening to this, you like podcasts, and their podcast is the best. If you enjoyed that, tune back in next week. we got some more coming up. And until then, keep it squatchy.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes.